Good morning, and welcome to the podcast of San Diego First Church of the Nazarene. My name is Dee Kelly, and I'm very glad to be with you this morning and feel very honored to pastor the church that's located in the Point Loma area of San Diego. <clears throat> we would love for you to join us on Sundays if you can. At 10.30, we have our services, 9 o'clock Sunday school, and then midweek programming. And it would be a joy to have you with us in person, but certainly appreciate you joining us online and hope that this material provides some inspiration for your journey. And always welcome if you have questions to contact the church office um, or reach out to me by email if you would like to. I am at dkelly, D-E-E-K-E-L-L-E-Y, at sdfcnaz.com. We are stepping into Corinthians. The lectionary presents for us a series within Corinthians, but kind of an excerpt from this first letter, of which there are two. And in this first letter, the readings for several weeks in a row take us into chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 15. And so I would love, if I could, to read for us the reading for this morning, which is chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verses 12 through 30. And here is what it says. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. <clears throat> and if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles and prophets, third, teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? 
Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we jump into this passage, it's important to have the context as we need in every kind of review of Scripture, and that is that this is a letter. Um, It's mentioned at the beginning that it comes from Paul, the apostle, and it is sent to the church at Corinth, a pretty key city in terms of the marketplace, um, many things taking place in that community, in that city, that might be of interest to know concerning the writing of this uh, letter and its context, but probably more pressing seem to be the issues that Paul is addressing in the church. The issues seem to be many. They center around the ways in which people treat one another, particularly within the context of the church, how worship progresses, how the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper is handled, um, how people do things that create disunity by their actions. In fact, it would seem that one of the key themes throughout this entire letter is the notion of unity and the things that tear apart unity and keep them from coming to pass. That's no different than what we are looking at here in chapter 12 in regard to spiritual gifts. It appears that the use of spiritual gifts has resulted in some contention, some jealousy, some frustration, ways in which people are using their opportunity to be part of the group Um, and using the things that God has given them to divide. Whether they know they're doing it or not, it is producing a result that, that Paul has to address. And so he has looked at, in previous passages and in this one, some of the diversity that exists within the church. He acknowledges that there are both Jews and Gentiles. And that becomes an important issue in terms of how the people come together. He acknowledges that they are both slave and free and how that plays a part in how the people are conducting themselves in the midst of worship in the body of Christ. And the imagery maybe a metaphor, but becomes far more than just a metaphor, is the notion of Christ being the church and the church being one body. And so this imagery is used throughout this passage to try and teach some very important lessons to the church at Corinth, lessons that probably have great significance to us today as well. So in the midst of exercising or participating in worship, there are differences that take place. And there are some people who feel like they don't matter. That somehow who they are in the midst of this grouping, this church, that their contribution is insignificant or non-existent. Paul is saying that they're wrong, absolutely wrong. And in saying this, he corrects both the person who is uh, feeling unimportant, uh, 
or alone or not valued, and simultaneously with that, correcting those who might be living in such an arrogant way that they seem unaware of the hurt and the pain and the suffering of someone else. He uses the body as a descriptor to do that. He said that if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that doesn't mean it's true. He's saying it's not true. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't really belong, he's saying that's false. What we think about that issue really doesn't count other than it should help us to be sympathetic or empathetic to one another. But he's stating that the fact is that we are all part of the body and an important part that there will be no whole without the individual parts. There is a powerful lesson underlying this, and that is Paul's admonition that following Christ certainly includes our individual relationship with God because it is God with us and God in us. But that's not all there is. Paul is stating very clearly that the community, the fellowship, is an essential part of faith. It is an essential part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And that all who follow Christ have been blessed with things that they contribute to the body. And you might feel like you don't belong, but that's just not the case. Your participation makes this place better and whole and healthy. Part of the teaching is an admonition to others who feel like they found their place to not be arrogant as if they understand all things, but instead to recognize how much we have to learn from one another. The hand can learn from the foot, the foot from the elbow, the elbow from the mouth, etc., etc. There is so much information and wisdom and grace that all the parts of the body have to contribute to one another. We just need to learn how to use those gifts in ways that help others be blessed as well. One of the great challenges in our Christian faith is to move from our individual relationship with God to finding ways that we can bless others through what we contribute, whether it's resources, spiritual giftedness, um, a way by which we interact, to find some way to help someone else hear and sense and experience the good news. One of the references that's part of the culture of Corinth and many countries in the Middle East is how Paul starts off this entire argument. He begins with the foot saying, because I am not a hand. The foot in many cultures, including shoes that wrap the foot, are considered the most unclean portion of the body. It's the connectedness and groundedness to the earth, certainly, and that's a beautiful image in and of itself, but it is also considered that which is the least clean. 
Shoes are often used as a way to express disgust. Sometimes in protest, large mobs will raise their shoes in other parts of the world. And it's the raising of the shoes and shaking them that is an expression of the utmost disgust toward a leader or a policy or something that's taking place in their community. Statues in certain parts of the world have been beaten by people's shoes as a way to express their abhorrence. And so the fact that Paul begins this piece with saying, can the foot say this to the hand? Well, no, the foot is essential. We then have a conclusion in parts to some of this metaphor where it talks about if one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. I, I, I don't know how you feel about suffering and, and uh, rejoicing of others or honoring of others. Sometimes they're both very difficult. Sometimes it's difficult for us to perceive how others might suffer. Sometimes it's equally difficult for us to celebrate when somebody else is honored, be it because of jealousy or feelings of inferiority or lack of justice or whatever the case might be. We sometimes find it difficult to join in a celebration with somebody else. Likewise, to join in suffering with somebody else. But what an honorable calling that the body of Christ calls us to hold both of those. When somebody is in pain, to enter into that hurt with them. When somebody is celebrating, to step into that and rejoice with them. Not make them feel like they have to be apologetic or debate the issue or bring them down just a little bit. But to celebrate when there is something to celebrate. This is part of what the calling is, is the body of Christ. Now the truth is that some of this fights against what we might consider to be human nature. The person who is follow, following Christ in spirit sometimes finds that the flesh doesn't always operate as it ought to. There is much evidence that says the best predictor of future human behavior is that person's current or past behavior. Look at what somebody has done in the past or is doing currently, and that's a great predictor of what they will do in the future. We have so many people that are trying to predict what we will do in the future. There are algorithms online that measure what you look at, your searches in Google or whatever it is that you might use for your search engine. It is um, part of the marketing that takes place to garner our attention, to take our resources, um, to cause us to spend money on things that supposedly we need. It is that effort to determine what we've done in the past as a predictor of what we might do in the future. There's also some evidence that says that change in a person's life is more likely to come about if there has been a near-death experience, sometimes that changes behavior, or if there has been a profound spiritual experience. Spiritual experiences often change daily behavior. So the invitation is to move into the spiritual journey of following Christ, and in so doing, take Christ as our lead. Now, it seems very important to me to talk about the 
way in which this argument here is set in a larger sermon within a letter, a sermonette, if you will, that Paul is giving. And it's easy to miss if you don't understand some of the um, writing style or writing methodology of the people called Hebrews. The Hebrew people had a number of things that I wouldn't say they were unique to their writing, but that were often included in their style of writing. Some of the ancient Hebrew literature, in particular Isaiah and Amos, had a way of building an argument. It was almost poetic, even though it wasn't always done in poetic form or poetry form. It was a style where you would have the crescendo of your argument fall in the middle of what it was that you were stating. So it would be a buildup to a crescendo and then a following that followed the same pattern that built up to the crescendo. So the message would be set up by several components. Then the primary message would be given and then it would be almost as if it would be taken apart and then applied in the same order that the idea was formed. So, what might I mean by that in 1 Corinthians? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 14, and remember that these chapters weren't part of Paul's writing. They were added much, much later. There is this movement where the beginning and the end of the teaching have kind of a match to them. They are both about men and women in worship. That's found in chapter 11 and the very end of chapter 14. The next step in the argument or the rhetorical way by which Paul is writing is about disorder in worship. In chapter 11, it talks about the Eucharist and the way in which it's being done in a terrible fashion. But after the crescendo, as Paul is stepping back the argument, there is also a discussion of disorder in worship, and this has to do with those who are speaking in worship. Then there are two portions, including chapter 12, that have to do the gifts of the Spirit, spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 and chapter 14 both speak about spiritual gifts and how they're used and their propriety in worship. The crescendo for all of this is right in the middle of this long presentation, and it's chapter 13. Chapter 13 is a, for lack of a better word, a hymn of love, a song of love. And the three steps toward it, how men and women conduct themselves in worship, the disorder in worship that's taking place in the Eucharist, spiritual giftedness in the nature of the body, this all leads toward this profound way of life, a life of love. Having presented that in, verse thir in chapter 13, Paul then carries it back into practice, and he talks about the spiritual gifts again and how they are practiced in building up the body. And then he talks about disorder in worship and how People speak in church and then concludes again with men and women in worship and how they ought to conduct themselves. 
So the point of these chapters, 11, 12, 13, and 14, is the centerpiece, this piece of love. And so when we talk about spiritual giftedness, we have to acknowledge how important it is that the way we conduct ourselves in worship and in the body of Christ is permeated with love. It is what drives us, motivates us, inspires us, holds us together, leads us to embrace one another and hold everyone as important and valuable so that we love together, we suffer together, we rejoice together in love. And when something within worship begins to divide us, ultimately we have to go back to what would love do? How would love conduct itself? If we are all members of one body, so diverse in who we are and what we do, we constantly have to be reminded of how important it is to ask the question, what would love do? So my admonition to you this morning is to recognize that you are unique. God has created you with special gifts and talents. Unique to who you are, there may be others who share some of the same spiritual giftedness, but they aren't just like you, and they don't express them in the same way. And your part in the church is to find how who you are can contribute to the community of faith. And I would contend it's not just our community of faith. It's the community of faith worldwide. Yet the most opportunity we have is within a local community of faith. What does it mean to share your life in such a way that others might experience the good news? And then how do you and I, in the body of Christ, hold one another in suffering and in rejoicing? How do we correct the wrongs where somebody says, I don't belong, I don't have a part, I don't have a place in the body? How do we correct that and extend our embrace and love to hold one another in forgiveness and kindness? We do this together. We do this challenging one another. For the truth is, we are all important and valuable. And for whatever reason, God has chosen to make us the body of Christ. Once again, the incarnation in us. So that the notion of God with us becomes our enactment of Christ on earth so that the kingdom of heaven might come. But it will never come, no matter how great the spiritual giftedness is, no matter how profound the gifts that have been bestowed on God's people are. Without love, it will amount to nothing. Love is what makes the difference. Not in some trite way, but in a profound practitioner's way that how we live out our lives in love 
changes us and changes the world. So I invite you on that journey to live a life of love. And may your spiritual giftedness find new power, new expression, new joy as we learn what it means to live with one another in community. God bless you. I hope you have a great week. And I ask that God fill you with God's Spirit, that God's Spirit will not only dwell in all parts of who you are, but will flow through you so that all parts of the body might experience the good news through your life. So go in God's grace and God's peace.